that uh, they're not always like in your face, violent insurrection resistance. Sometimes it's creative resistance in terms of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what we do with, with culture and arts. Sometimes it's culinary, sometimes it's, you know, language, sometimes it's a lot of different things. But this idea that, uh, you know, you know, there's a traumatic component and a focus on what's lost uh, in extreme uh, oppression. So, you know, where mm -hmm. slavery and colonialism might be, the, 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 that's as low as you can go, right? Yeah. Um, but it, it, there's a joy in uh, understanding, even in those darkest moments, that people still found a way uh, to be creative, to uh, affirm themselves, to mm -hmm. uh, reproduce their culture, to right. uh, have hope, right? So in some cases, people were doing things knowing that it wasn't going to have an immediate material impact in, in present time, but for future generations, right? Hello, and welcome to Design Unmuted. I am your host, Divine, a landscape designer and social critic. Design Unmuted is a podcast that centers marginalized voices in design, art, and all things creative. My guest today is Kofi Boone, North Carolina-based designer, educator, and environmental justice advocate. Hi, Kofi. Thank you for being with me today. And oh, thanks, Devine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm very excited to have you here. I am a big fan of uh, your work. Um, have great respect for you and uh Anna, i invite you now to introduce yourself to our listeners oh uh, sure well divine it's a great honor to be with you today um uh, also admiring your work as a uh, the next generation you're the the next ones up so always really supportive and really hopeful uh to see the baton getting passed and you are running with it uh my name is kofi boone i teach landscape architecture at nc state university in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, I'm a native of Detroit, Michigan. Uh, I went to the University of Michigan uh, for undergraduate degrees and worked for 10 years at Smith Group JGR before I started teaching. So I came from sort of a non-traditional pathway uh, into teaching. My family is uh, from Southeast uh, Washington, DC. Um, and so a lot of my roots are in Maryland and Virginia and, and that part of the world. Um, right. and uh, Landscape architecture was not uh, a very popular choice when I announced <laughs> what I wanted to do <laughs> with my yeah. life. So that was uh, that was interesting. Yeah. I, I actually uh, uh, was on the path to uh, be a musician, professional musician. Oh, uh, nice! When I pivoted and turned towards uh, this kind of stuff, so we can talk about that moving forward. But generally speaking, yeah. uh, that's who I am. It's uh, what I do. I'm I'm uh, excited. I'm, I'm the president elect the Landscape Architecture Foundation. Uh, so that's uh, uh, the majority of my non-professional uh, time goes towards service that organization and uh, uh, just happy to be here today. Oh, thanks. You know, I did not know you were a musician, so I would really mm. love to hear how uh, you keep that going as a landscape <laughs> architect. <laughs> <laughs> not as well as I'd like to, but maybe maybe when I retire. Be able to get back into it. But yeah, we can we can talk about that. Yeah. So, oh, of course. Integral to my, my path to landscape architecture was actually music. So yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, we should definitely touch on that because I've I've been really interested the integration of music as a way to to design 
and like to, to get inspiration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of connections. There. So yeah, mm-hmm. right. yeah. So I guess my first question to you is, um, what has your experience as a black person been in the profession of landscape architecture in general? Wow, you know, that's a, it's a, it's a long, complicated question. Uh, yeah, facets to it. So, you know, uh, it's been all over the map, uh, beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have, uh, like many felt invisible or at least, uh, felt like I've had to put my full cultural identity kind of in the background mm-hmm. in order to succeed at times, uh, in school or, you know, professional life where I felt like I've had to kind of, uh, uh, kind of go on autopilot sometimes and, and not bring like my full self. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the situation because I didn't feel like it would be uh, valued or would make an impact. I've been on the other side of uh, feeling sometimes tokenized. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, sort of dealing with all the expectations of being sort of the, the voice or the face of an entire uh, culture, uh, mm-hmm. the expectation of representing in that particular place or uh, people assuming the only reason I'm in the room is because of you know, what we would say in America, affirmative action or some um, kind of special treatment, not because of the merits of what I'm able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, most recently, I think that it's been a bit more balanced where I do think that um, uh, I'm, I'm a big proponent of equity as opposed to equality as an idea that we're not all the same. Right. Uh, and that there is some uniqueness to our backgrounds that add richness to the story and having the ability to write, having the ability to uh, really uh, share ideas, even before people know who I am uh, and then right. people re- resonate and respond to those ideas, I think has been a really interesting moment now where I feel like it's it's sort of in a balance now where I, I think that we're trying to find a way to to kind of position our, our unique point of view uh, in a way that adds value to conversations and reveals mm-hmm. ways that uh, haven't been considered and addresses challenges that we've, we've suffered with for many, many times. So I feel I'm feeling that way now at this stage in my life, but right. you know, it's, 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 it's been all over the map before to be honest with you. I can, I can, I can honestly say it's been all over the place. Well, it's good to hear that it's, it's feeling a little better. Um, mm-hmm. I've definitely felt also that the need to, to put my full self, I couldn't fully express my, like who I am and who mm-hmm. I wanted to be within the profession, just because I wasn't supported or mm-hmm. even understood, like even the attempt to be understood wasn't there. Um, right, so I totally, right. totally un- like can understand that feeling. Yeah, sorry, you were gonna say? Well, I was just gonna say, you know, it's interesting that, you know, there's some of my colleagues who just don't have that expectation. Like they know that, you know, it's the nature of what they're doing that, you know, they won't bring their full selves and don't understand why that's even required or necessary in order to thrive, you know, and, you know, uh, you know, it's generally in like STEM fields where people are like, you know, it's, you know, technical. So, you know, one's culture doesn't really matter to that. It's really, you know, it's really the, the, uh, the, the, and that's why they gravitated, for example, to, you know, these particular fields is that they, they didn't want to deal with all the, the, the cultural issues. They just wanted mm. to be able to be excellent at something that was technical, measurable, anybody could do it and move on. Mm. Um, but, but design, I don't think is like that. I think design. Not at all. <laughs> no, no. It's like, it's really who you are is a lot of what you do. And so yeah. if, you, if you don't feel like you can, you can be your whole self, it creates all kinds of tension and challenges that, that yeah. people just 
understand in other fields, I think. Mm -hmm. Totally. So um, you you teach, right? And um, I'm assuming you must have some of your students who are black. Mm -hmm. And uh, so knowing that the profession itself is doesn't always make the space for people who are, who are black and people who are not necessarily part of the predominant white culture. Right. How have you kind of like navigated that for your students who are black who are not part of the predominant white uh, culture? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. Um, and I'll just say up front, I don't think I've done the best job with it. Uh, so I'm going to take a, um, some responsibility uh, for not doing everything that, that I think was necessary in some situations. Um, I have former students who are all over the map. You know, um, I'll be honest and say probably about half of the black students that I've taught and mentored and advised are still in the profession at this point. Uh, oh, about half great. of them have uh, moved on. And so they're applying whatever they learned to whatever aspect of life that they're in. But about half of them are still in it. And of that group, uh, about half of them are in you know, private firms or public agencies or you know, kind of doing landscape architecture. So, you know, at that time, uh, you know, and, and the numbers are extremely low. So generally speaking, where we are, you know, uh, in a student body of, you know, 45 to 50 folks, you know, we may have at any given time two to four, you know, black students in that mm. particular group, uh, which is kind of where we are now. Um, right. We're graduate only program right now. Uh, but uh, of, of that group, you know, what I've tried to do is to be available mm -hmm. uh, and to, you know, make sure people understand that, uh, that, that I'm there, you know, not just to deliver the technical side of whatever's necessary in education, but to be a sounding board, to be a supporter, to be an advocate, uh, you know, things in that regard. Um, when uh, opportunities move forward in terms of, you know, internships or jobs or publications or mm -hmm. leadership positions, you know, I've, I've mentioned those, you know, and, and, and help black students understand that, you know, they have a place in all those as well. And if there's anything we can do to move that forward, as well as uh, working with the actual, you know, people who are working in that, that, that component on the other side that we do have talented folks, you know, the unique cultural perspectives that, you know, are worth, worth taking a look at. And, Right. And I have to say that, you know, in it was harder in the past because of what's happened since the summer. It's a little little more uh, straightforward that people are actually asking for that now, you know, which right. is different in the past. Uh, how long that's going to last, I don't know. Uh, but mm -hmm. but it, it has been easier to have those particular conversations. But one thing that I have noticed is that um, uh, this this current generation of uh, folks are, you know, also questioning like that traditional pathway, you know, to practice, which mm -hmm. is like intern at a firm, you know pay your dues and then move forward. There's a stronger entrepreneurial spirit. There's a stronger spirit to kind of find ways to get outside of that system right. of, of traditional uh, sort of in apprenticeship and that sort of, for a lot of reasons. And so that's something that I'm in the process of retooling now to help uh, provide resources to folks who don't want to do it that way. Like they just might want to come out the box with something completely different or, or pursue totally different channels. And so you know, right. that requires you know, a different set of skill sets. So I'm, I'm working on that now in terms mm -hmm. of how to be a better, better advocate for that. And what are some of these ways that people have uh, taken that are not conventional? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a number of them, you know, so, uh, uh, you know, a group that you know, I admire a lot uh, is uh, the Urban Studio, you know. Right, um, so, yeah. 
uh, you know, the great work of uh, Kendra and, um, and her crew, uh, mm-hmm. where they uh, you know, are evolving like a way of practicing you know, mm-hmm. in real time right now. You know, so everything yes. from you know, mentoring and working with high school kids to sponsoring all these amazing online events and sort of open sourcing uh, tools and techniques that they're developing. And so, um, you know, that's that's been one that I've really drawn a lot of inspiration from in terms of like, I think this is uh, another way, you know, and so, right. you know, that requires, you know, a lot of skill sets that we normally don't teach people in landscape architecture, right? So mm-hmm. they're really powerful uh, networkers and they know how to kind of uh, build relationships. And mm-hmm. um, that idea of open source and not being like siloed and privileged with what you've learned, but being very open with what you've learned and sharing it with a lot of other folks and uh, pursuing funding and non-traditional sources to, you know, promote that stuff. So even right. donations or philanthropic stuff. So you know, those are all skill sets I think are going to be required uh, moving forward for people who want to have more moving towards liberation, right? So the idea right. that you're not always tied to the traditional pathway in order to practice, you know, it's it's a wide open field now. So, I so I, I really, I really, in that way, draw inspiration from the, the younger generation. Mm-hmm. That, that is very inspiring. And so given that um, there aren't that many Black students in landscape architecture, I guess, how how do you think the environment could be more inviting to have more people be interested or feel like this is something that they can pursue? You know, that's a really good question. You know, um, for many years, I was asking that question myself in terms of, you know, you look at Black communities, not just in the United States, around the world, you know, and who really is the most directly affected by changes to the landscape and, you know, mm-hmm. in the broader sense, climate change, right? It's always black folks yeah. uh, around the world. And so uh, from sea level rise to, you know, environmental justice issues in cities to, you know, everything you can name, gentrification and displacement, like it's just kind of pointing at the same group of people. So why wouldn't that compounding need mm-hmm. inspire people like, hey, you know, is there a profession out there that can kind of get engaged in that? You know, I can be proactive and pushing back yeah. on that. There's definitely a desire to do it, but generally speaking, there are other professions that are kind of capturing that energy. So, you mm-hmm. know, political stuff, social stuff, economic stuff, but yeah. when it's the design, it's hard uh, for a lot of people to make that connection. So part of what I've been focused on is trying to examine that, right? So yeah. working from the assumption that landscape architecture is in that realm in that arena where people can have some sense of agency and they can mm-hmm. you know, build resources and build connections to advocate in their community interests. I think the, the jury is still out in that regard, to be honest with yeah. you. Uh, but I think that, you know, it's, it's a connection that hasn't traditionally been made is that, you know, there actually is a, a home for people who want to deal with that, but deal with that directly with the environments that they're living in. So, right. so part of that is sort of elevating that. And I've been kind of uh, very intentional about, uh, you know, when I, give lectures, when I write, um, when I teach, uh, is to uh, really talk about these situations and talk about the roles that landscape architects and other folks have played in addressing those particular things. Um, uh, So part of it is sort of uh, filling that gap of information, of of, of drawing those connections. And I think the other one, which uh, is probably more associated with me these days, is uh, history in terms of... Mm -hmm rethinking how we tell the story of landscape architecture, not just in a current sense of dealing with these contemporary challenges mm-hmm. historically. So, um, you know, and where I'm in the South, in Southern United States, uh, you know, nobody was really talking about, you know, uh, black folks in the landscape before, you know, the 20th century. And 
privacy reasons, like nobody wanted to talk about legacy of slavery, you know. Right. And before that, nobody wanted to talk about the legacy of colonialism and what happened mm-hmm. to indigenous people. So, you know, you you recognize, you know, the folks that were associated with uh, where you are, where we are, uh, where I mm-hmm. am now. You know, it's the Eno and the Shikori and the Saponi and uh, the Lumbee and a number of other folks. So, you know, there's there's sort of a, a I think a, a, a retelling of uh, of really our origin story, you know, right. so that people can kind of look in it and say, hey, I see myself or I see the issues embedded in that. Uh, so mm-hmm. my, my, my theory of change right now as an academic is, mm-hmm. is that two-pronged thing, right? Is in a contemporary way, sort of highlighting and elevating the people and the places and the examples that are taking on the challenges that are really important to the community. And then right. in, the, uh, in the archival reflective way is examining you know, who we are and how we tell our story to, to find ways to reveal where uh, we were there, you know, we were active, we were doing things, but we just, it's just not a part of that mainstream. Campus. Right. So yeah. I've kind of been pushing on those two, two pieces uh, from where I'm at. Totally. Yeah. I think that's, that's going to be key because right now there is no room for us in the profession as it is, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Um, I, I, in my history class, when I was going through school, mm-hmm. we're going through this and I come from a political science background. So everything is mm-hmm. like, what is this? It's <laughs> <And laughs> <Right. I, laughs> <laughs> making more sense now. I'm starting to, to get the real divine here. I understand. <laughs> the science is making more sense. Now. <laughs> uh, so like I question more than anything, right? It's just like, I'm just going to mm-hmm. throw a question at the table here just so we can try to unpack it. Mm. And then I remember there was no mention whatsoever of the colonial history of this country. Mm. And then you start talking about the French garden, the English gardens. I'm like, mm-hmm. and then, you know, this is first year. I'm like, you know, this is not political science. You're in a profession like, and then I'm like trying to navigate how much of this critical land, like, or do we just like, are we here to just to make drawings? Like, you know, so right, right. for me, I'm, you know, and I'm always kind of like in this tension, but also these are lies, you know, mm. like you, th- th- this is, this is complete bullshit. You cannot be teaching people <laughs> wrong information. Right. Right. But, you know, right. at the time, you know, you're thinking I, I, I need to make mark, make good grades and like not, <laughs> you know, right, be right. the one who's like turning everything upside down. Uh, so I, I definitely can agree with the fact that there needs to be a different way to talk about landscape architecture. Um, yeah, yeah. Because- Yeah, there's um, um, a book uh, that was edited recently that came out of Dunbar Noakes sessions uh, about uh, landscapes in Sub-Saharan Africa that I wrote a review of, a mixed review, to be honest with you. We can talk about that later, but- Oh, I but there was that. one component of it that I thought was interesting. There's a writer in there, uh, Gray Gundekart. Oh, uh, yeah, that's my favorite chapter of the whole book. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I actually ended up, uh, Gray and I ended up talking after that review. She reached out to me after the review. We've been trading notes. And, you know, this this idea of like what you're saying, you know, in terms of I think it is important to know, you know, these these garden traditions. Uh, however, I think you need to know the complete story. So mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, all of these garden traditions parallel colonialism, which is to say, you know, they accrued that wealth and that power and that privilege to be able to do these gardens because of the exploitation of mm-hmm. huge parts of the world, you know, um, and uh, borrowed traditions from those places, appropriated them to kind of assemble and build their own pieces. And so if you just 
if you don't know that other side of the story, you kind of look at it and you're like, well, these people were just sort of out of the head of Zeus. You're like, yo, these people are brilliant. And they came with all this amazing, you know, yeah. and it became the interaction between Europeans, you know, and so it's sort of like, yeah, you know, the French did it, and they passed to the English and went to this group, and blah, 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 you know, and then yeah. you say, well, what was happening in the rest of the world at this particular time? And that was, I think, one advantage, at least my own education, uh, was the faculty at Michigan were asking that question too from an environmental justice perspective in terms of mm. anything about the mainstream environmental movement, you know, uh, birds, bunnies, flowers, mountains, all that cool stuff that everybody yeah. agrees is great, right? Wasn't, weren't there other environmental things at the same time? Turns out there were. And so a lot of their work uh, has been sort of a revision of what we call the mainstream environmental justice movement, uh, mainstream environmental movement, excuse me, to include, you know, the views of women, of people of color, of working right. folks, of all these particular groups, you know, and I think that 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 Gunnikers component of that book and what, you know, can then deal with it is not to deny that those things occurred, but to contextualize them. Totally. That, that people can understand, you know, really how it worked. And um, and I think that, you know, it's there are a lot of people who are really asking that question. And I would say on the gender side of the game are much further along. Um, so mm -hmm. uh, uh, bringing uh, uh, feminist and womanist theory uh, to the fore in landscape, following what architecture did, you know, right. uh, in that regard, that they're further along. But when we deal with cultural context, you know, some of it is, um, uh, you know, it's 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 recycling in terms of uh, do people think that firms want to hire uh, people who understand that broader cultural context? Like, and then will right. firms see that as a way to make more money? You know, if they can offer that sort of thing, and if there isn't any demand on that side, then mm -hmm. you know, why teach it? And on the other side, uh, there's so few numbers of indigenous people and black people and people of color in school environments. You know, you do it, but, you know, it's there isn't uh, a, a sort of a push, uh, sort of a grassroots push to say, like, hey, we're demanding this sort of thing. So yeah. I, I get like where the cracks are, you know, the chinks that kind of perpetuate. It. However, I think there's enough brain power now uh, and there are enough people in enough places that are really asking that question that we can, we can push through. Yeah, totally. Actually, it's, it's funny you say that. I remember... We saw a group of, of us wrote a letter to our school um, with the Black Lives Matter movement mm. uh, when everything was kind of like in the heat of things, right? Every, now mm -hmm. all of a sudden people wanted to start having these discussions. So, mm -hmm. and then, so a, a few other friends were like, oh, this letter is like, they were kind of like not okay with how it was demanding to have more, content around black and indigenous content in, mm -hmm. in a way. And they were like, oh, but we, it's not like we even have that many people there. So I'm like, mm -hmm. for me, it's just like an academic institution is not supposed to only show one view of the world. You're supposed to, it doesn't matter who's in that, in that room, right? That's like right. we don't get validated because we're in the room. Like we, these things exist and therefore they need to be covered, right? So. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if you don't have it, then people are not never going to feel comfortable being there anyways. So like, how do you, which one comes first, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, it's real. You know, and I think, you know, you were doing that uh, here, you know, the Zionist protest movement. Uh, now the Dark Matter University uh, mm -hmm. sort of organization started to kind of push on that really hard, too, in terms of, um, you know, it's 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 not about uh 
uh, necessarily placating or dealing with the people who are in the room. It's about telling an actual true story, right, about what we're about. And it's about infusing the values, even if people aren't in the room, uh, mm-hmm. infusing the values of those people into how we think about what we do. And uh, uh, so there's, there's, you know, an argument that I make is that, it, you know, knowing more about these stories and these perspectives makes all of us better. Right. It's right. Not yeah. Privileging, you know, or, or placating a group of people who are like, yeah, finally, somebody told my story. I'm good. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like that. It's, it's it, that's definitely a component of it. But the next step beyond it is it's saying that we will produce better solutions. We will think about things in a more agile way. We will have a stronger ability to build consensus in really contentious situations. We will mm-hmm. uh, inspire people and, and, and open uh, the, the playing field for people who don't even know who we are. Right. Right. Uh, so, so there's other benefits that have nothing to do with just keeping uh, black and indigenous people kind of happy while they're sitting in class, right? There's there's a whole nother host of things that are beneficial for the whole profession, and I think I think that's yeah. really the push. That's what what I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah, totally. I mean, the fact that people would even make such an argument actually goes to expose their inherent belief that there is no value in these different types of knowledges. That right. like, you know, that there is nothing to learn from there. It's like, oh, we do it because you're here. But like right. the, there is no acknowledgement that within itself, there is so much expertise and so much that actually has been stolen from those things and co-opted as the mainstream white way of doing things that, you know, and to me, that's like, that's the thing that even like is more messed up. It's like, you really <laughs> think, <laughs> you really think that this is the only way and the best way to go about life. <laughs> right, right. You know, and, you know, our conversations, we've been talking about, you know, the sliding scale. So everybody has a bias, you know, so you got a right to, you know, believe whatever you want. But when you start to add resources and power to it, it moves to the next level, you know, mm-hmm. you actually, you know, actually, that's racism. That's the definition yeah. of it is if uh, you're having, if your bias is weaponized, you know, and in, in the case of this, it's, uh, you know, it goes even further to, you know, this issue of white supremacy, which is to say that, you know, no matter which part of the world or which era or which type of project or which context or which technical detail, it's always uh, a, a white or European expertise that is sort of championed exclusively, like not even just like one of many voices, but the only voice. And in the past, it was even further. It was white male supremacy. So that you know, right. white men that expert on everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, it's the dismantling of that idea of uh, the idea of that that landscape architecture does not have to be a white supremacist profession. Uh, mm-hmm. It can be a profession that uh, cultures can see themselves in the tools, the validation of theories, the ideas of history and what practice, you know. Um, so so just because it's been that way, uh, mostly focused on beautification, garden design from a Western uh, white lens, uh, mm-hmm. that does not have to be its future. You know? Right. Mm-hmm. And it can't be if otherwise it's, it's going to die off really soon. Like, yeah, right. I, I don't see how we can survive that much longer if that's how it continues to define itself. Right, I agree, I understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, now going back to history and um, the time of slavery. And so I know you talk about plantations um, in some of your writings on uh, black landscapes. Mm-hmm. And can you contextualize that um, for us a little bit? Yeah, um, and you know, I'll just start by saying, I acknowledge that you know the African presence in 
the world, but even the landscape architecture does not begin with slavery. So there are mm -hmm. many traditions that have nothing to do with Europeans, nothing to do with colonialism that were uh, a part of the many cultures on the African continent. Um, so I just want to start there and say, I'm not imagining that this whole story starts with slavery, but, right. yeah. but I think, but I think in terms of where we are in the Southeast, it was an attempt to kind of recover um, a, a very important era. And to say that, you know, uh, African uh, knowledge and, and excellence even uh, existed like in that time frame. So mm -hmm. um, it was good because, you know, there's still a, a, a like I said, a misconception about uh, the period of slavery, uh, at least in America, where people were selected essentially for their muscles, right? Mm. Um, and their ability to reproduce, right? And so everything else that was that they did was the product of them learning from Europeans and learning from white people. Mm -hmm. And we know that that now that's basically not true. And that uh, we we often divorce the era of slavery uh, from the history of landscape architecture, even though um, you know before Frederick Olmsted in our country, uh, you know people will point to Thomas Jefferson, you know, and say. Mm -hmm. A lot of things did at Monticello, uh, you know, a lot of his expertise in horticultural science, his sort of interest in planning. He, he did the design for uh, University of Virginia, you know, mm. at the same time, you know, owning, you know, African people, uh, you know, uh, uh, producing children with African people like, you know, that that that, you know, that people kind of danced around the issues with that. But I, I decided to go closer to. A uh, place where I had a really important experience. So um, Middleton Place, mm -hmm. in, outside of Charleston, South Carolina, uh, which is a uh, if you like uh, those kinds of landscapes, it's drop dead gorgeous. It's uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, it's most famous for what are known as butterfly lakes, uh, which were a uh, feature uh, that was designed uh, by those folks because people would approach this plantation from the river. And so part of this was for other landowners to kind of get this wow moment when they're coming to this place. And so there's got this beautiful terrace scene and it's just it's just a really just a stunning kind of landscape. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was probably more significant because it's one of the few uh, plantations that uh, perfected rice production in the United States. And so right. uh, the, at that time uh, in our country's history, uh, there really wasn't a large cash crop uh, in that part of the world. And they tried a lot of them and they couldn't make it happen. And so they, mm -hmm. uh, the Europeans, uh, particularly from coming through the Caribbean. So there's a Caribbean connection to this. They got uh, wind of African people in Senegal, the Wolof people, mm -hmm. uh, who had for centuries, you know, kind of pioneered these, uh, these engineering systems of creating floodgates and, you know, irrigated fields and, you know, all of this amazing sort of technology to produce rice. Uh, mm -hmm. And had the other benefit, uh, uh, tragic benefit of a high uh, rate of sickle cell anemia, uh, mm. which makes them malaria resistant. So not uh, vulnerable to it, but the, this is very rare that those symptoms hit. So at that time, the Southeast United States was very swampy, right? And malaria was pretty rampant. And so, you know, these, these Europeans kind of connected the dots and they were like, yo, if we could start, you know, enslaving this group of people. You know, we could actually get this thing going. And that's basically what happened. You know, so uh, there were extended periods in Newton Place and other plantations when there were no Europeans around. And so there were African people there just kind of doing their thing. And so, right. uh, you know, in some ways it's been talked about. I talked with Charles Birnbaum 
from the Cultural Landscape Foundation about this, where you know they did a whole profile on Middleton Place, but they kind of subdivided the, the formal gardens, the beautiful parts that we all know from the rice plantation production component of it. And I kind of went, well, you can't do that, right? They're right. inextricably connected. So this is sort of illustrative of our conversation so far, which is like picking and choosing, and cherry picking is American term. Right. Of uh, what we want to represent. The whole thing is what mattered. Matter of fact, the rice production innovations might be more important because without that, there wouldn't have been the resources to build the other right. parts. Point. Yeah. So, so, so that was sort of in the DNA of a lot of these places, which was a lot of innovations that were skilled, uh, uh, learned skills, uh, passed down for generations, evidence on the continent of Africa that it was done before, that were brought with African people to the United States and deployed in a totally different context. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's sort of where I went to kind of talk about, you know, how we've sort of accepted this one narrative uh, right. about about how these places were generated, the skills that were brought to bear, where they came from. And so there's many, many more, but that was the one I really kind of honed in on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's really good to acknowledge that. I, I have, like, there's a little tension in me to, like, you know, embrace that part, but also plantations as Black landscapes, but also these are also spaces that were filled with so much oppression for mm-hmm. these people and like, is it fair to us to call them black landscapes? Because it is, is it's, the, it's, the, it's an area that destroyed so much of the souls of, of, of the people, even though it was their expertise and labor that brought it to life, right? This is like, there's, yeah. there's this tension that I, I, I'm having a, like a hard time to reconcile with. <laughs> so I, don't, I don't know what are your thoughts, yeah. your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, Divine, I think that's a great, you know, a point of conversation, and and, and I've, I've I've gotten that reaction um, often, uh, and particularly from Black folks, and, and and actually got into this conversation with my mother. <laughs> she was like, "You did what? what? Did she you say? Know, what are you right about? Like, what the heck are you talking about? You know, I'm, like, okay, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll go down a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> that you weren't supposed to read that, you know. Uh, all right. Um, well, you know, I think that there's there's a there's a lot in there. Um, my my attitude was uh, part of it was intentionally going to uh, sort of very contentious topic and area uh, mm-hmm. sort of to get people's attention and be like, yo, you know, I know that this is complicated and it has trauma written all over it. We know the right. Uh, but, but it's important to go there uh, and then in the American context to, to move forward. And so in that article, it doesn't just stay uh, with, uh, uh, the plantation it, uh, it it moves forward to you know what happened after reconstruction and yeah and, and a lot of the types of landscapes where uh, black folks who then had resources and uh, had uh, more of a way of, of dealing with American context in particular what they chose to do so from building universities to building towns to you know mm-hmm. neighborhoods you know there's just a, a, an incredible legacy uh, with that so so I, I guess the first thing I would say is that I didn't stay there and just sort of right. you know, contain it to that. Um, you know, the other part though, which, uh, uh, you know, I have a lot of uh, family and friends from all over the diaspora. So, you know, continent of Africa, you know, Europe, Caribbean, that's sort of South America, like there's just folks all over the place. You know, we talk about that in terms of the definition of black. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, 
and I didn't get into it in these particular articles, but I think that part of it is, uh, is sort of an identity that's connected to uh, different ways of resisting um, Mm. Uh, a white supremacist uh, sort of culture uh, that uh, they're not always like in your face, violent insurrection resistance. Sometimes it's creative resistance in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, w- what we do with, with culture and art. Sometimes it's culinary. Sometimes it's, you know, language. Sometimes it's a lot of different things. But this idea right. that, uh, you know, you know, there's a traumatic component and a focus on what's lost uh, in extreme uh, oppression. So, you know, where mm-hmm. slavery and colonialism might be, the, 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 that's as low as you can go, right? Yeah. Um, but it, it, there's a joy in uh, understanding, even in those darkest moments, that people still found a way uh, to be creative, to uh, affirm themselves, to mm-hmm. uh, reproduce their culture, to right. uh, have hope, right? So, in some cases, people were doing things knowing that it wasn't going to have an immediate material impact. In the, in the present time, but for future generations, right? They were mm-hmm. they were they were planting seeds so that there was something there generations later that they may not be able to see it, but they but they but but you know landscape in a way to me is a hopeful act, right? It's, yeah. it's a, because a lot of what we do we we won't see the full benefits of within our lifetime. So yeah. so part of the the, the 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 black landscape thing is also a definition of blackness that's connected to I would say creative resistance within mm-hmm. systems of white supremacy once we came in contact with one another. There's a whole nother definition of it that precedes that. Um, mm-hmm. Before, you know, all of that contact, there were things that, that folks were doing. Uh, right. but, 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 but implicit in all of this is um, hopefully along with the trauma for sure, there's mm-hmm. also the hope. It's totally. also the hope and the investment yeah. moving forward. Mm-hmm. So you you speak about black towns. Um, mm-hmm. I actually want to talk talk a little bit more about that because um, okay. recently there was on social media um, there was a group of African Americans who put money together and and bought like these huge pieces of land. Yeah. Um, to build uh, communities, mm-hmm. right? And this is something that has happened throughout history. Uh, mm-hmm. And so do you think that in this environment of racism that black towns are is the best solution to towards having peaceful environments for black people? I don't know. Um, that's a really hard question uh, to answer. I'm familiar with that that case and there are a number of them were you know, and 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 I guess it's important to note, like particularly the folks in Georgia who bought a lot of property mm-hmm. uh, with the intention of starting a black town. It was explicitly uh, their intent is to do it to provide a, a place of safety, a, a harm-free yeah. mm-hmm. uh, zone for black folks, and and in response to uh, really the, the the attention given to the the police violence that we've experienced like, you know, here and yeah. abroad, right? So so sort there's a there's a line that's being drawn there, which is to say. You know, there's a spatial response to this, which mm-hmm. is to say, you know, um, we think that we could be more successful in feeling safe and preventing harm if we had our own. You know? Right. And, and that comes from a, a really long, you know, legacy. So, um, you know, the three that we talk about in terms of black towns to, to start the clock are uh, Mount Bayou in Mississippi, uh, Eatonville, Florida, and Princeville, North Carolina, um, based on 
you know, which way you read the documents. One is first, you know, one is third, mm -hmm. rather than pick that, we'll just say those are like the big three. Right. Uh, and, and that was, you know, the intent then as well. Um, in some cases, because uh, during Jim Crow era, uh, they were relegated, you know, to these properties. So if they wanted to own property, build a business, mm -hmm. own a home, you know, it was, you know, extremely difficult to do that right. as free black people. And so some of this is about like what they were relegated to. But the other side of it is that, again, that hopeful and aspirational thing. Right. Um, so uh, uh, in, in all of those cases, um, they continued to face uh, assaults uh, and challenges. And mm -hmm. it's unclear whether or not uh, the town in and of themselves uh, was sufficient to protect them from you know, harm. Right. So in the case of Mount Bayou, uh, it really got most famous uh, in the modern civil rights era, uh, the 50s and the 60s, uh, as a safe harbor and for organizers in Mississippi. So from Mega Evers to a number of other people, they kind of went to this town and, you know, they, they, they hosted them and protected them when it was time mm -hmm. for them to organize, you know, Mississippi Freedom Schools and a lot of different things. So, yeah. so in that way, it protected them sort of politically. Uh, in mm -hmm. the case of Eatonville, uh, Florida, uh, after many years of decline, re-energized uh, through the Zora Neale Hurston uh, Festival, uh, because that was a town that uh, that that the great uh, Harlem Renaissance writer uh, wrote about, uh, lived in for a period of time, and so a way of uh, building sort of cultural arts and cultural uh, ties. So, so that one may be more of a, an example of a safe harbor for really celebrating excellence in arts and culture. Right. Um, Princeville, uh, most uh, infamously noted for its uh, the damage done from repeated uh, hurricane and flood and disaster events, but now moving forward to build a, in a resilient way um, to kind of demonstrate how you know people who are on the front line community through climate change can be in the front literally in terms of developing solutions right. in very small rural areas. So so you know in terms of the the success of of a black town as a way of protecting people. I think the jury's out on that. Um, and we're also in a little different era, you know, all three of those towns we mentioned before, you know, that's reconstruction, you know, so that's before the turn of the 20th century. And that's right. many more connections to the land. Manufacturing was just, you know, ramping up in a lot of rural areas, you know, urbanization in our country was just getting started. Mm -hmm. We're now in a global era, you know, right. and so there might be some benefits, which is to say, um, where you physically live, you know, may not need to be uh, connected at all to how you build your economy, how you uh, educate your children, how you, you know, participate in life. You can have a global life from almost anywhere in the world now, right? Uh, it could mean that uh, in addition to the other side, in addition to uh, owning the land, that it may mm -hmm. invest local uh, practices. So, you know, cooperative ownership, uh, 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 local foods uh, and urban food systems, local energy, like there might be another whole thing that I haven't heard about that they're considering that would kind of amplify that notion of like, you know, self-sufficiency and, right. and self-care and, 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 and sort of self-protection. But I, I think the jury's out. I, I, I don't think that there's a clear answer that that's mm -hmm. the only way to, to protect folks. Yeah, I feel like sometimes it gives like a pass to the racist system that's in place. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, oh, we'll, we'll just leave it alone. 
mm. and go off on our own. It's like, no, you shouldn't have to be mm. like secluding yourself from, from what is your communities at large right. just to feel safe. Right. So for me, I'm like, I'm like, I think it's great to have areas where you can be uh, like free and like fully express yourself and, and be embraced. Uh-huh. But that as a response to safety, because you're fearing for your life, right. that's where I'm like, no, you should be able to feel like that <laughs> within <laughs> this system. You know, like, it's right, not like, right. it's, like, don't give, like, they win, you know, if you go away, they win. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I don't know if this is a global thing or just specific to the United States, but I know that, you know, 20th century uh, for uh, black folks in general, there were three ways at the beginning of the 20th century. So, you know, you have Marcus Garvey, you have W.B. Du Bois, and you have Booker T. Washington, uh, and to a certain extent, Ida B. Wells, you know, so those were like the heavy weights of the early 20th century in terms of like carving out this direction. So, you know, on one end, you got Marcus Garvey, you know, you got Pan-Africanism, you know, mm-hmm. you got at that time, the largest organization of African people in the world, you know, um, through the UNIA. And he's like, we got to build these bridges. We got to think globally in terms of an African community. We have to Mm -hmm. reconnect to our roots, you know, and so if not for some chicanery by the FBI, you know, and mail fraud charges, then, you know, maybe Garvey would have won, you know, in terms of really where you are matters, but what's more important is you connect African people around the world, economically, politically, you know, that whole thing. Um, So that, you know, that's one pathway, right? And And then, and then Booker T. Washington, uh, is, you know, well, we got to build our economic uh, self-sufficiency first before we advocate for political change, right? So we sort of like get a skill, mm-hmm. get a trade, get a job, you know, and that's sometimes misconstrued as sort of uh, uh, don't be political at all, like don't mm-hmm. uh, engage in things. But he was sort of trying to build a foundation and a basis of saying, like, you know, there are other things that give you power, right? When you right. have economic power and you have your own businesses and you have your own work, you know, then you're in a better position to then advocate for political change. And I think that's really what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 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 du Bois was the opposite, right? And, and, and Ida B. Wells was to a certain extent as well with her uh, incredible advocacy for anti-lynching uh, at that particular time where they were like, no, we're, it's the laws, right? We're protected by the same constitution. We're, you know, privy to this. We, we pay the same taxes. Mm-hmm. You vote in the same elections. Like these people are accountable to us. And so our goal is to, you know, use those levers of power that we have access to. And I would say that, that they won in a certain extent that uh, mm-hmm. when we start talking about even, you know, the election of the, of, uh, the uh, vice president, you know, and so you know, Kamala Harris mm-hmm. as the first uh, black uh, and uh, woman, uh, first woman, uh, uh, vice president, uh, yeah. probably will be the first woman and black woman president to eventually too. Uh, oh, you know, she's, can't wait. <laughs> she's coming from that legacy of saying like, you know, let's, you know, vote, you know, political power, you know, get folks in seats of power. And so what I would say is that, you know, another way of looking at this land thing more recently is that in some ways, I think we have not, uh, as a community really talked about, um, that part of it. Uh, right. The importance of owning land, of owning property, of economic mm-hmm. development. We've kind of heavily relied on political change. Right. And so maybe this is sort of a signal that people are thinking more broadly now and saying, hey, maybe a little bit of what, you know, Booker T. Washington was talking about, maybe he was, he was getting at something. Um, uh, and others like in that, I mean, Fannie Lou Hamer, 
will invoke her name uh, in terms of uh, uh, Mississippi Freedom Farms and cooperative ownership as a way mm-hmm. to lift the poorest of us out of po- out of poverty and right. into uh, self determination was very much about land, right? It was very much right. about land property. Uh, yeah. So so it wasn't just a male thing. It was it was it was a lot of us. But I guess my point is that maybe we're we're at this point where it's swinging the, the pendulum swinging a bit. It's like politics. Yeah, we're we're moving that way. We right. Come back on economics and land now as well. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, that even on the African continent, um, that is also something like um, returning land to the people and like land ownership was, I mean, up until now, is still a big part of liberation uh, that is happening. Um, Actually, now that that we're, I want to ask you what your experience was being in Ghana Mm. And as a black person, because the first time, right? Because now mm. you're all of a sudden in this place that is predominantly black, mm-hmm. right? In what you would call like a black landscape mm. by default. What was, what was your, how did you feel? Like, uh, how was your, how, was your blackness any different when you were there? Wow. That's a powerful question. Holy smokes. Wow. <laughs> this is a really good podcast. I think, I think I would listen to this even if I wasn't on it. Wow, what a question. Um, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about the time in Ghana. So my first uh, time there was in 2005. Um, and I went twice that year. Uh, mm-hmm. I was a co-director with uh, someone else, uh, one of my mentors who was recently retired, a guy named Charles Joyner. Uh, who was uh, among a lot of different capacities here, but for many years was a professor of art and design, um, who grew up in rural North Carolina. And he's like my dad's age, you know, so he's mm-hmm. like a generation older than me. And he talks about how the Ghana study abroad and international studio started. So he started it in 1997. Mm-hmm. And it was in response to a call from the first black uh, provost of our university trying to build linkage agreements uh, mm. with uh, universities in Ghana. And so they built some between NC State and Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology in Kumasi. And so uh, Charles uh, started in 97. Um, I get to NC State in 2004 and then 05, we, we co-direct. And uh, my first name, Kofi, is uh, a Ghanaian name. It's an mm-hmm. Akan name. And so the naming system, uh, our day, state base, days of the week. Mm-hmm. So my name literally means boy child born on Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this speaks to the Black American experience. My parents didn't know that when they gave me that name. Um, oh, they didn't? No. And I was not born on Friday, which is really an interesting conversation when I go to <laughs> You take that really well, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> my, my children are legit. So Kwame and Ama were both born on Saturday. So they're like nice. for real. Okay, that's not, awesome. Not, not, not me. I'm, I'm a fraud. So <laughs> yeah, you're, you're that, just that, that was always the, <laughs> But that kind of speaks to it, right? Which is, you know, a lot of us uh, in America uh, who in other parts of diaspora who have not been to the continent of Africa, don't have a direct relationship with people from the continent. You know, uh, uh, we have sort of romantic, you know, rose-colored yeah. glass you know, way we were all kings and queens, you know, and mm-hmm. like, you know, it's this whole thing that we've kind of built this fiction up in some ways is self-defense. Right. Uh, in the midst of just some incredibly uh, harsh uh, kind of conditions. But right. so getting to your point, you know, setting foot now uh, in Ghana uh, and particularly in Accra, um, mm-hmm. 
uh, you know, a lot of, of different things. We were lucky that we uh, teamed up with uh, local Ghanaian people uh, to teach this class. So uh, uh, Mr. Joseph Amari, who I cannot uh, give enough uh, thanks and honor to, uh, who was in the uh, uh, education department under uh, Flight Lieutenant Rawlings, who recently passed away. Uh, so when Rawlings was uh, the president of Ghana, yeah. Uh, during a very tumultuous period, uh, Mr. Mari was in the education department there. And so uh, he was very careful not to allow us to have this stereotypical tourist uh, kind of experience, but really educational experiences. And so awesome. the partnership that we developed uh, was uh, we went to all 10 regions of Ghana. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started with uh, being quiet and listening and learning and learning about Ghanaian culture through. Uh, arts and and cultural production. So, you know, we'd head to you know the Volta region and be with Eve people, and they would you know help us understand beads. And so we'd be in the bead village, you know, and mm. you know learning why that matters and how that's tied to all kinds of rituals. And we're documenting the heck out of it. And then we head to you know the Shanti region and learn about the lost wax technique with uh, metals. And we learn about mm. wood carving and we learn about kente, of course, which is what Ghana is you know probably most things for uh, yeah uh, uh which has an interesting story uh but uh, a dinkra you know symbols and you know, we had north you know up to uh you know bogatanga and you know near the the border of um of uh, burkina faso and mm-hmm. um and uh learn about uh, leather work and basketry mm-hmm. and, and some of the beautiful sort of houses mud houses that are raised out of the ground by women in that part of the world uh, mm-hmm. that have these incredible microclimatic factors and they're painted houses, and, you know, it's just so, so we spend this time like kind of moving around and, 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 and learning all these things. And then we arrive in a location and do sort of an action project. You know, mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and uh, generally in Accra uh, or in the Western region, either in the uh, Cape Coast or Elmina. Uh, and, and then there towards the end, get into, you know, legacy of slavery, the slave forts and the castles and, Mm-hmm. you know, all the complexities there. So, you know, there's just so much there. I, I just think that uh, my first impression was just sort of being in awe of it, uh, sort of uh, revering it, not fully feeling like a part of it, uh, right. but but knowing there's a connection, but somewhat tenuous to sort of reaching for uh, things. And I think that that, that that focus on art and culture mm-hmm. was and design was a way for us to kind of communicate was, you know, that, that we you know, those are designers and artists and creatives as well. And so on that lens, we were able to kind of communicate trade, exchange, you know, have ideas. And then from there built, you know, other kinds of relationships. And so um, right. um, one thing I did learn um, that I hold on to is uh, is uh, ritual and mm. uh, how important ritual is to culture and what rituals have uh, remained uh, which have been lost, which have been transformed, uh, because there are things that we do in, in in America that I didn't know were connected to West Africa and Ghana. You know, like the way we mm. shake hands and give that, like that's a real thing with the snap in Ghana. Like they were yeah. doing it, and I was kind of like, "Well, wait a minute, have you been to America?" And they're like, <laughs> "No, like no that's the years, original. Eh? That's the OGs." <laughs> you know, so the snap was the first thing. I kind of went, "Oh, okay, you got, I, I see what's going on." Yeah. Uh, uh, pouring libation. Um, so uh, mm-hmm. we used to, you know, in our kind of 
fractured American experience, you pour some out for the dead homies, you know, we're in yeah. high school. So whenever you got like something to drink, you pour a little bit on the ground before yeah. you, you know, you did the thing. N- not making that connection to libation, right? So the idea that when you gather like as a group, you honor the ancestors first. Yeah. And it's it, it's it's you 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 do the pouring and you do the drinking. So mm-hmm. so so there were kind of like these ghosts kind of flying around, you know, like, oh wow, yeah, okay, I, I kind of get that. I understand how to deal with that. Um, but you know, at yeah. the end. Uh, where I'm at now is uh, the roles. So I'm back to almost like a Garvey kind of thing now, which is uh, my position as a Black American in the African diaspora. Uh, what can I contribute? You know, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a period where I was like, well, maybe, maybe it's trying to be as Ghanaian as possible, right? So there were like a few parts where I was like, shoot, you know, wearing all the clothes. You know, I'm learning Fanti. I'm learning Tree. Yeah. You know, I am. You know, I'm. I'm basically you know, kind of pantomiming what I'm learning uh, in Ghana. But what I've come back to is sort of understanding my position now in the diaspora and that I don't need to do that. I need to understand it and appreciate it and respect it and know how to communicate with it. But I'm in a different position, right? So I'm wealthier than a lot of the folks that we're dealing with. I have more access to technology and information. I have um, you know, connections to our experience here in this country, like, because there's a big disconnect, as little as we knew about colonialism, like what mm-hmm. particularly the British did there uh, was despicable. Um, yeah. They know very little about what happened once we, you know, crossed the ocean and what happened to us on that side. And so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, the, the need to have more forums where we can, you know, share those stories and talk about why that uh, matters and that's important. So I've I've, I've kind of come to the point now where I I um, still see them as family. Uh, right. My my people there, um, uh, Mr. Stephen Pogo, uh, uh, Mr. Joseph Amari and his family, uh, uh, Mr. Gilbert Amagachi and his family. Like there's just a number of folks that are, they're just like family. Right. Uh, but but now I, I I'm more uh, about embracing my role to contribute you know to the to the global conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I'm from Burundi, and I mm-hmm. also lived in West Africa. So, mm-hmm. I think I, I, we've we've spoken about this before, not 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 uh, here in this episode, where mm-hmm. um, I think I've I've told you that after your article, uh, Black Landscapes Matter, it like I was like questioning what is a black landscape. Mm-hmm because um, my experience of blackness has been so different depending on what country, what city I'm in, you know, which continent I'm on. And uh, it's really hard for me. It's great that we can be unified under the identity of being black, but it's also, you know, it's like, there's so much to it. Yeah. That it's like, how, how do we also in, maybe it's not fair, you know, under one term to kind of like, be able to um, reflect all those different yeah. complexities, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was, I was curious to know how, what your experience was, you know, being on the continent for the first time. Cause oh, I yeah. imagine I mean, it, it must've been mind blowing. <laughs> oh, it, it was awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. You know, I think that, um, you know, and you know, we haven't talked about the, the trauma side of it, but you know, anybody mm-hmm. who's ever been through Cape Coast castle or Elmina castle, uh, and left with a dry eye, then, you know, I'm concerned about your level of humanity because, mm-hmm. I mean, just hearing, and, you know, my good friend, I, which I didn't talk about, but probably my best friend over there, um, uh, Quasi Blankson, who's one of the chief tour guides of Cape Coast Castle. 
mm-hmm. uh, who also gave the tour to the Obamas when they came over and, um, and a number of other dignitaries. So he's kind of, you know, got it kind of down. Um, mm-hmm. His version of the story as you move through is just, you know, it, it, it reveals that complexity. Um, and, and a lot of the contemporary issues that were challenged with uh, as a African diaspora, he, he kind of positions what happened in that castle in particular as sort of the precedent for that, you know, so from the Anglican church, that was the first Anglican church on the continent of Africa was in Cape Coast Castle. But that was mm-hmm. their exponent for bringing uh, Christianity, at least to West Africa, for the British to do so. And, you know, then also sending Ghanaians to be educated in England and then bringing them back to Ghana uh, uh under the auspices of demonstrating the value of their civilization and their way of thinking and what that did to traditional cultures. And, you know, there's, there's a more informal um, story uh, that Yag uh, Yassi uh, uh, wrote, um, uh, Home, Homecoming. Mm. My friend told me to read that book. Oh. Yeah, it's on my list. Oh, incredible. In- incredible. And so I, I actually bought multiple copies of it and sent it back to my friends in Ghana. And I was like, yo, you got to read this. Right. Because uh, in a way it captures sort of this idea of like, how much are you connected? How much are you not? What do you hold on to? What do you what do you let go? Uh, what can't you let go? You know, it's it's kind of all into that. So it, it, I think mm-hmm. that, that it's a great sort of counterpoint to your conversation. But for me, uh, in, in my opinion, you know, where I'm at now is uh, 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 there's a way of defining Black landscapes is like a set of ingredients, which is like, it has to have this and it has to have, it's like a checklist kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't see it that way at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, where uh, people who consider themselves Black mm-hmm. uh, feel that they uh, have created places that can reproduce uh, their cultural traditions, to me is the thing. And so mm-hmm. whatever those traditions happen to be, mm-hmm. you know, the regional specificity of it, the adaptation required due to uh, being in different contexts. Like, so I don't, I don't treat it like a, uh, like a litmus test. Like you're not black enough. You can't be a black landscape. I don't yeah. look at it that way. I look at it more as, you know, where are people uh, continuing these rituals, right? That, right. That, that they can pass on. Right. Right. Uh, uh, in those places are probably uh, uh, there's probably a landscape component and, 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 and I hope that it changes over time. Mm-hmm. I hope it's not static. You know? Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the introduction of black landscapes, uh, Walter Hood's new book, he says it is, and I quote, it is up to those of us in the field to continue to articulate and most of all develop a prophetic aesthetic to counter the colonial malaise so that we can remember and develop new futures from the power of the past. And I think it's such, such a powerful um, calling uh, to all of us. And so what do you think this prophetic aesthetic could embody? <laughs> <laughs> That's hard. You can't follow a MacArthur fellow, so my, my good friend <laughs> Senior brother Walter, I, uh, I, I, I I gratefully defer uh, to anything he has to say. He's a uh, he's a great friend, great inspiration to us all. Incredible quote. You know, I think that um, I think there's a lot to it. I don't have uh, ingredients right now. 
mm -hmm. uh, that would go into the aesthetic component. Uh, other than the indicators, which would say probably where black folks are doing well, are healthy, are joyful, mm -hmm. uh, are engaged, um, that feel seen, um, that feel um, um, that they can live in a dignified way. Um, those are probably the indicators mm -hmm. that things are going that way. Uh, so I, I've been thinking less about the components. And I understand, and this is, you know, where, you know, we're wrong in different lanes. Like I'm in an academic lane, you know, Walter's in an academic and a design lane, in which case mm -hmm. aesthetics is critical. So it's essential mm -hmm. uh, to, to making the environments. But I'm more in, in the indicator lane. And that's mm -hmm. where I'm interested now is how do we increase joy? How do we increase mm -hmm. health? How do we increase uh, visibility, dignity? How do we increase connections? In, in, in those places are probably um, the places where these are, are working really well. We need to know more. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something I've, I've thought about immensely. And I was like, wow, what, what could be an aesthetic? You know, in terms of a lot of uh, uh, other aesthetics, you know, in, in, in Afrofuturism, which I think is a part of, you know, what you're dealing with in the podcast. And so, you know, you look mm -hmm. at, you know, the writings of people like Octavia Butler, you know, their, their translations into contemporary media from, you know, what ta Coates and folks are doing, you know, with Black Panther mm -hmm. uh, to uh, even Lovecraft Country uh, to a certain extent. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that yet. Um, the HBO series. Uh, I have not. Uh, yeah, the stories of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, who was a notorious racist, but who wrote this sort of spectacular uh, horror uh, fiction. Uh, they combine that with uh, the uh, Jim Crow South. And so they kind of connected those supernatural monsters to real monsters that were occurring mm -hmm. at the same time. And so it follows this group of people moving through the South. And there's a couple episodes in particular that I think get at that uh, that aspirational kind of what does that really mean mm -hmm. it's it strikes me that a lot of it is not um built environmental and physical a lot of it is perception and, right uh and value based and, and 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 i'm reminded of you know to get back to ghana that you know one thing that that, that hit home with me particular ritual was in uh 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 um dr apuku uh who's a, a renowned uh, scholar of West African uh, spiritual traditions, you know, we went to his farm and he's talking about it. And he's like, well, you realize, you know, African, West African traditional cosmology of how we see the world, mm -hmm. uh, only about a third of it is the physical world. Mm -hmm. You know, two thirds of it is ancestors, spirits, you know, it's a whole thing that you need ritual to activate to be able to see. And so right. then the physical environments are and even like the personal environments like it explains mm -hmm. like the way people uh dress uh you know their hair you know um you know there's all of these like like human components that activate that and so one right. thought that i had regarding the aesthetic was that to begin to think about built environments as uh, activating that unseen world mm -hmm. as radically different and that's tied in some ways to uh, uh some of the some of the writings now Afrofuturism as well, which is that it, totally. it's less about what's physically there. It's more about your transformation in terms of how you mm -hmm. think, see, feel, 
what you can sense and, and sensing things that aren't like physically present uh, right. as an integral part to how you deal with the environment. And I would say we've stripped a lot of that out of contemporary landscape architecture. African people right. aren't the only people who had these value systems and these belief systems. Right. Um, the, the idea that, that most of the world was unseen and that you were Absolutely. really uh, uh, governed by forces that were beyond our understanding uh, and that only through ritual can you connect to it. That's not a foreign concept, but a lot of our uh, ways of thinking about landscape architecture have stripped that whole even question out. Like we don't even ask about people's spiritual beliefs. You don't ask about right. ancestors. You don't ask about um, you know uh, uh, those kinds of things. It's very sort of uh, uh, economic. Uh, it's very uh, much uh, what you can measure, uh, which is physical. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that there might be a space there to say that that, that the spirit uh, is is essential uh, to uh, health, totally. uh, to to joy, to uh, to being seen, and and I think there's just a lot of room for that and an innovation in that and how we work mm -hmm. and how we practice. I think a lot of that, you know, uh, I will say that a lot of folks that I know who are uh, landscape architects call themselves black. Uh, spend a lot of the time working with black communities, not required in order to be a great landscape architect. Uh, everybody that we revere, they didn't do nothing with no communities. They didn't go right. no meeting. Fred Homestead didn't have no community meetings <laughs> for Central Park. You know what I'm saying? Sort of like probably should have based on what happened with Seneca Village, but there's a whole nother conversation. But, mm -hmm. but the idea that, 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 um, I found that folks gravitate towards like, look, I don't feel like I can move forward unless uh, I have some confirmation that the people uh, that are going to inhabit this place have 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 sort of agreed that this is sort of the pathway to go. I think that right. I think that gets misunderstood. I think that gets talked about in terms of like community design and sort of mm -hmm. just a lower rung of what we think about in terms of design. Like, oh, yeah, you got to do that. But that's not really design, so to speak. Uh, I think that's indicative of a very different value system, which is like, you know, I, it's not about me. It's about all of us. Right. We all have to move forward together. I think that's sort of a, a baby step towards that acknowledgement of spirit. You know? and I think yeah, totally. And the fact mm -hmm. that in a lot of African traditions, the idea that a single person is the main builder of a community is that doesn't exist. Right. Nope. So it's like we almost have to redesign the design process yeah because everybody is a designer of the community 100 right and so 100%. it's like maybe we're just translator just because we have the skills to maybe communicate things the way that they need to be communicated to be built or or whatever and the more that i even think about like i'm do i was doing my thesis project and so mm -hmm. I'm kind of like going in the past and looking at how how were houses built and like really looking at the the cultural processes behind it. And it's like, so I'm drawing these things. I'm like, nobody drew this. This mm. is not a means of communication mm. in the culture. Mm -hmm. The means of communication was oral and was presence and engaging. Yeah. Right. So then maybe our professions by virtue of engaging with community building the way we do is inherently exclusive and will never actually lead towards spaces that people feel like they're like they're a part of like they can have ownership of it mm, mm, you know powerful. that's that's kind of like 
what like uh, the more that I think about it, I'm like, oh wait, like this is problematic mm. in its inception. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, right? So I mean, part of it you could critique it as a part of the colonial project. You know, it's not like these folks for you know centuries and centuries couldn't write or couldn't mm-hmm. draw. They chose not to, right? Yeah. They, they 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 connected passing that knowledge on in some very fundamentally different ways. And so, you know, who really benefits from applying, you know, that colonial process? Because that, that's really when that started was like, you know, mm-hmm. like, we gotta write this down. Right. Yeah. Because that was that, you know, because we're trying to replicate it within this particular system. So yeah. I mean, I think that I think that's fair. Um, I also think that there might be another side of it, which is um, you know, this is something that we talked about. I teach a theory class, and this is something we talk about in terms of the college that I teach in is a descendant of the Bajas. Mm. Um, so it's like one step removed. There were a number of people who fled uh, Germany and Europe when the Nazis uh, took power, came to the United States, um, uh, including the, the Bauhaus scholars. Some of them went to Harvard. That's where Gropius went and you know, mm-hmm. revolutionized the architecture department at GSD. Some of them came to North Carolina, what was called the Black Mountain College, and uh, mm. and we're we're a descendant of that. So we're NC State sort of a descendant of that uh, the College of Design. So this this idea of uh, uh, in their mind rejecting what they thought was the Beaux Arts, right, which mm-hmm. is uh, sort of these 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 utopian kind of ways of making things that are tied to sort of European neoclassical things. And the Bauhaus was sort of like, no, we're trying to essentially mass produce uh, a better way of living. Um, and we think that it's multidisciplinary and we think that there's just, there's a utility kind of built into it. So we, we had this whole conversation in mm-hmm. terms of the, the value of, 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 of drawing versus the value of making and doing uh, versus the value of what we're doing now in terms of the oral tradition and talking, you know, that it's not one size fits all. But, but mm-hmm. one advantage of drawing that I've discovered is um, it's easier to uh, explore alternatives, changes, and measure mm-hmm. outcomes before you commit to resources. Right. So mm-hmm. there is a value to building um, as a way of making, but you sometimes go so far along the pipe uh, that um, it, 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 it takes it takes a, a lot of really uh, visionary people to uh, to move forward. You know, using mm-hmm. that particular technique, whereas Drawing, although it comes from you know colonialism and it comes from these other traditions, allows for a uh, sort of a flexibility um, that the building doesn't afford. And so, you know, there's a there's a philosopher, professor of philosophy. I read uh, Kwame Anthony Appiah, mm. uh, who teaches at Penn, who talks about cosmopolitanism, mm. um, and uh, and and the idea of navigating um, cultural influence. Uh, to whose advantage is it to claim exclusive as exclusive ideas belong to a certain culture mm. if someone participates in multiple cultures at the same period of time? Mm-hmm. Um, so he's written uh, quite a bit about that, and and, and I'm I'm kind of there with it now. This person mm-hmm. in terms of uh, it's possible to ground um, something within the cultural values of a group. Uh, but then learn from, borrow from, adapt from tools and techniques that come from other cultures. Um, 
Yeah, and I think that's powerful. That sit ethically and philosophically, right? So, mm-hmm. so rather than feel like you know, in order to be perfectly consistent within a cultural worldview, you have to do everything within the boundaries of that culture at a certain period of time, which, especially in this era, seems really hard to do. Yeah, I mean, that that, that would be pretty impossible and and also unfair because mm-hmm. cultures have always been evolving and mm-hmm. and coming in touch with each other and exchanging and and growing. So. Mm-hmm it's only fair that like you also employ that, that methodology of, of fusion and, and like, you know, mm-hmm. acknowledging, right. Because we don't, you know, nobody's isolated completely and nor should we exactly. like the beauty comes from the exchange and the growth that happens. 100%. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So it looks like we're coming up to time. So before we finish saying, as I've been asking all of the questions, um, I want to ask you if you have any questions for me, not difficult (laughs) ones, of course, because you know, (laughs) it's only fair. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, divine. I have a lot of questions. No, no. One question. (laughs) (laughs) Pick wisely. (laughs) And I guarantee no answers either. (laughs) Hey, there you go. You are ready for being a professor. I want to congratulations. Uh, (laughs) yeah another another uh uh, african tradition the socratic method of teaching um was uh uh that uh, associated with the greeks but uh there's Mm -hmm. a strong connection to uh lessons learned particularly in uh kemet in in egypt um of uh, of that method of of not providing answers right But, but probing with questions and challenging students to be participants and Mm-hmm. Framing the knowledge is a is a real thing. So I think that's the majority of our profession, and I think that you know, there's. I mean, we often kind of use it as sort of a, a sign of weakness and saying, "Hey, I wish I knew about this when I was four years old." You know, like someone who wants to be a doctor or something like that. But, but I think that also is the engine that produces the potential for a diversity of thought and in our profession is that people have often lives before they come to mm-hmm. and they bring those lives with them. And so, you know, part of, you know, this conversation has been about how to extend that, bring more fully, you know, our full lives mm-hmm. to it. So I think it's, it's for the richer, it's for the richer. Talking about our full lives, you know, I wasn't going to forget about the musician. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. um, how how did you stop being a musician and, and started being a landscape architect? Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting. So, you know, I should I should start really from the beginning. So uh, I know your listeners can't see this, but my uh, my backdrop, my virtual background yeah. is actually a painting that my grandfather did in oh, the it's 1930s. It's so beautiful. In the 1930s, yeah. His name was John Robinson. Uh, lived his entire life uh, in Washington, D.C. These images are from Anacostia. So if you go to Washington, D.C., it's sort mm-hmm. of the uh, cross uh, the Anacostia River southeast uh, was rural at the time he was there and urbanized just like everything else. But um, he was self-taught uh, and, uh, uh, you know, like a lot of folks in that generation, mm-hmm. uh, you know, didn't go to college, you know, had a lot of the challenges of growing up in you know, Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the South. Uh, my mother, uh, though, uh, was uh, one of the first in my family to graduate from college. 
uh, got her BFA from uh, what was then Baltimore Institute, which is now Maryland Institute, uh, an art school there. Uh, so I kind of grew up around arts. Oh, uh, you know, it really wasn't a thing, you know, enjoyed it. Uh, my first love was film uh, mm. and comic books. Uh, and nice. and Star Wars was like really central to that. And what mm-hmm. really triggered it was uh, seeing Star Wars uh, when I was six years old in the theater. And then my mother getting the Star Wars sketchbook nice. uh, and showing that, you know, yo, and I was like confused. I was like, wait a minute, that wasn't real. And she was like, nah, it was real. People let you dream that up. They started with sketches and drawings. I was like, shoot, that's all you had to tell me. <laughs> that's <laughs> me like, next. <laughs> I'm doing it. I'm going to be the next George Lucas. That was like the original. Yeah. But uh, I, uh, in, in, in fifth grade, uh, I went to Detroit Public Schools. Uh, in fifth grade, uh, they had like a music test, right? Hmm. Uh, where they wanted to test people's aptitude to music. And so they thought I had a high aptitude for music. So I started taking music classes. So uh, I played French horn and I sang. And, uh, and I got really good at both. And um, so I got a scholarship to Interlochen Arts Academy in Northern Michigan, about mm-hmm. the furthest away from Detroit you can get. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, hours away from any kind of urban center in between two uh, state parks, uh, interlocking is a term that literally means between the lakes. It's this little narrow sliver bit of land. And it's a performing arts high school. It's essentially mm. a place where people tune up for auditions to then uh, go to college or, or to perform. And so I went on a French horn scholarship and played uh, in the band and the orchestra there. But I was in this incredible sort of bucolic setting uh, yeah. for the first time. And I uh, went on a, a math science camping trip uh, where the math and science teachers there would select group of folks and they would send you to a deserted island uh so mm. off the coast of lake michigan um uh uh it's north manitou island uh which was sort of used to be a, an old farm uh that had fallen in disrepair and would have been there for like 100 years and so there was a ferry that would take you there and then unless the ferry boat was there that like you were there so we were there for like four or five days mm-hmm. you know uh, t- uh catching songbirds and eating wild edible plants and you know all this, all that stuff. And it was like, you know, I, for the first time I was kind of like, you know, I had no idea I even liked this kind of stuff. I didn't know what was going right. on. Uh, so in my head, I was like, well, is there a way to be creative, but also, you know, lean into this. And so this is all going through my head without telling my parents. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so they they were all like, okay, yeah, we're getting ready for, this is my junior year in high school, getting ready for auditions, heading towards, you know, that sort of thing. So we go to Michigan uh for a college visit and uh i had a really high uh, sat score in math um so i went uh to visit the math department of all things mm. and so the guy there was like so you know what do you want to do when you study when you come here and that was the first time i ever said out loud well i kind of like art and creative stuff but i kind of like nature too and i like to do something with both and, you know my dad was like the spit out your drink moment <laughs> what <laughs> What are you talking about? You know, my mother's like, I don't understand what's going on. So they were really, really, really mad. Right? So uh, this guy, he, uh, his name was Maxwell Reed. I remember his name. He took us yeah. over to the College Natural Resources and uh, took me to a counselor there. Her name was Sandy Gregor Mendes. I said, tell her what you just told me. And I said the exact yeah. same. She goes, yo, well, you know, the chair of landscape architecture is on sabbatical this semester, but, you know, he'll give you a call when he gets back. And I was like, oh, shoot, mm-hmm. thank you. So uh, he did. Uh, wow. His name, uh, Ken Polakowski uh, is now retired, but 
uh, I ended up, he hired me for a summer internship that summer, yeah. uh, hel- helping him with some of his research. And then it was just off to the races. So, so it was actually the music that got me into the environment uh, that helped me understand that I had an affinity and appreciation for this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think about it now, uh, it wasn't just sort of a step in that direction. I think that uh, thinking about music um, uh, is very similar to thinking about design um, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in so many ways from uh, sort of the, the dedication required, uh, the coordination to have different voices work in heart concert and harmony, mm-hmm. uh, improvisation, you know, so the ability to get like a notes on the scores on, on, on the sheet, but you know, sometimes you gotta, gotta do your own thing, but yeah. still with rules, you know, so, so that's still sort of floating around in there, but that's a, uh, yeah, that's the, that's, that's, that's how it happened. Yeah. So do you, do you integrate music in your work today? Poorly. Yes. Poorly. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like the more I try to really intentionally do it, the worse it works out. Uh, right. uh, and, but, but I, but I have, and, and what it, uh, it, one thing that has helped is, uh, to be honest with you, is uh, we've worked on a lot of projects uh, with communities where, uh, you know, they may not have, we were talking about French gardens before, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the classical examples of, of landscapes, you know, of which they can kind of hang their head on and say, you know, this is really mm-hmm. important. But, but they have these incredible, you know, stories and these traditions and these cultures that are tied to, you know, arts and culture. And so, yeah. um, you know, there've been several towns where, uh, and communities we worked with where that was the rapport, right? It was sort of like, you know, they start talking about, well, you know, this is old tobacco warehouse. We work there from nine to five during the day and then go home and eat dinner and then put on our Sunday best and then flip it into a performance venue. And then Louis Armstrong would come through and, James Brown would come through and be like, well, the tobacco warehouse, like for real, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it was sort of, it, it was, it, it's, it's been important kind of from that point in terms of, 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 I have an, an understanding and an empathy and I can relate to people who are kind of in that, that world. And we've tried to kind of produce places inspired by that. Right. So mm-hmm. settings that enable that, and, right. uh, uh, you know, uh, imagery that, that champions that inside of, Hey, this is, this is actually really important. This is really great. Um, so mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, it has it has directly impacted the work. Uh, but but like I said, like with most things in my life, the more uh, 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 direct and obvious I am with it, the worse it is. So. <laughs> <laughs> when it's when it's just sort of out there in the ether and it's just sort of informing stuff without too much attention, it, it tends yeah, to be better. Yeah, you just gotta yeah. just feel the 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 rhythm, but not actually. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Just, just, it. <laughs> it has to just be a groove. <laughs> yes. Yes. You got it. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just talking, you know, I could not, um, probably couldn't, uh, uh, most recently I was working on a project, uh, with a, a friend of mine who is, uh, indigenous. Um, mm. and, uh, so we're trying to co-design and, and bring, both of our cultural identities as a means to design. And I'm like, I was like, oh, drumming is important in my culture and also in your culture. Mm. So then uh, we started kind of coming up with using uh, like a like a sonograph as a way to nice. kind of like codify nice. um, like topography or material and stuff. So uh, nice. we just kind of started doing this and it's like, it's super exciting um, to see hopefully where that can go 
Um, fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, right? there's some some touchstones along the way. Um, uh, uh, you know, Lawrence Halperin uh, mm-hmm. uh, might be someone to look at the RSVP cycles, which partly because his wife was a professional dancer. Yeah. And they were, you know, you know, getting high, smoking weed out in the mountains and in that sort of altered state. We're like, well, why are we maybe think yeah. these things need to be scores and we need to like yeah. really do musical notation as a way to do with that. You know, Walter, we mentioned him before, uh, picked up on that. So uh, his book, Urban Diaries, uh, really lays out very explicitly the idea of improvisation directly borrowed from music. Um, mm-hmm. So he, he kind of touches on that. And so there's, there's a, there are folks who have attempted to, uh, you know, really go there and adapt yeah. it. So I'm, I'm cheering you on. I hope, I hope you figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe I need to uh, smoke some weed or something like that. Or drugs or anything. <laughs> no, you didn't, you didn't hear that from me. You didn't hear that from oh, me. Really? I mean, yeah. I'm just, I, hey, we were talking about telling the whole story of history. I just felt like I had to put the whole story out there. So. Honesty is key, you know? I was missing any, a key piece of ingredients. <laughs> for listening i hope you enjoyed this episode of the design unmuted podcast if you liked what you heard please rate and tell your friends about it subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode you can find me on instagram at ramesha design unmuted and also on my website at www.rameshadesign.com slash design unmuted the track you hear is under the sun by singer-songwriter kafaye and produced by Ozenit, Kiga, and Saint-Jean. Enjoy.